Let's take our Bibles, if you would, please. I hope you have your Bible with you. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 23 this morning. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. I was going to ask if you all had an enjoyable Thanksgiving, but what if somebody didn't? Then what am I going to do? All right, so I'll just say uh, I trust you did. How about that? We're in Matthew 16 this morning, 21 to 23, uh, an incident with uh, the leader of the apostles, who, by the way, just had shown very brightly in the passage ahead of this uh, in uh, verse 16 when he identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, which was exactly what Peter should have said because that was the truth. And so uh, he is blessed by Jesus Christ, and uh, he says, you know, Jesus tells him, you knew that because the Spirit of God chose to tell you that, and that's how you knew that. And I imagine he was uh, feeling pretty good right then. And today he's going to take a tumble, and uh, that's the way life often goes. We're doing well spiritually, and next thing you know, something happens. We've made a wrong decision, and we're not doing so well spiritually all of a sudden. Uh, I entitled this message, Who Let Satan In? All right, with a question mark. I could have also very easily entitled this message, Shooting Ourselves in the Foot, and I mean that spiritually through sin. The key to understanding this is demonstrated for us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Uh, one of the things that I run into all the time, except when I spent, uh, Noah and I were a month in Africa training uh, African pastors in spiritual warfare, they don't have a problem with what I'm saying. In fact, they think that uh, uh, pastors in America who don't buy this are deluded and blind, and uh, they were not afraid to say that. Uh, they know that Christians can be tormented by demons, and they say it's only in America where you're under the delusion that that can't happen. We're going to be talking a little bit about that this morning. But if you're looking at Ephesians uh, there in chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, I want you to remember that Paul is the one that wrote the book of Ephesians, and he wrote it to the Ephesian church. And Timothy happened to be their pastor. So it's a very, very spiritual man leading a group of people in Ephesus. They're, they're believers. Paul writes to them as believers, and then he warns them. All right, he warns them in chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. He said, be angry and don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath and thereby give a place to the devil. Now, most of your uh, translations, if you're looking at your Bible right now, they say, and don't give an opportunity to the devil. The word in the, in the Greek text is tapos, and it means place or room. About 95% of the times it appears in the text. But for the reason of trying to stay out of the debate of what Satan can and cannot do to a believer... They use the word opportunity, which it can be translated that way. It's rare, but it can be translated that way. They don't want to get into that. I'm going to ask you this, okay? If Satan cannot have a base of operation in the flesh of a Christian, you with me? Not the spirit. I didn't mention the soul. I didn't mention the spirit. If Satan can have a place in the flesh of a, of a Christian, then that means that they need to be aware of that and they need to know what's going to happen. And so Paul writes to Christians to warn them, be angry but do not sin. Anger is an emotion, but we have to control it. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Keep short accounts with God and with others. And thereby, if we don't do that, we give Satan an opportunity, but it's really a place or a room in our life. Now, you all know that uh, I've, I've said many times that two of the problems that I got growing up in the family that I got, both, both of these from the Hubbard side, 
we had a generational sin in our family and it went from from person to person as you're born you get this you get a demonic transfer just by being born a hubbard and so i had a lust issue from the time i was little and i had an anger issue and uh, the anger issue came out all the time and i would get mad about something it demanded this much anger and here came a truckload of anger and i couldn't stop it that's because I had an enemy pushing on that anger. And I trusted Christ when I was eight years old. This anger thing went on way after that. And it wasn't until I uh, found the material we used in our counseling that I was able to go back and forgive everybody I was ever angry at from the heart, because if you forgive anywhere else uh, from the head, it doesn't work, it doesn't mean anything. You forgive them all. And then I asked the Lord, is there an enemy that has drowned in me because of my anger, that room or that place? And he indicated to my heart, yes, there is. And so we got rid of that. We asked Jesus to get rid of it. He got rid of it. The thing that I noticed right off the bat was the next time something happened that I got angry, I didn't even have that much anger. There's The truckload was gone because the enemy was pushing that. And if you get rid of the enemy, that, that's gone. I remember I was mad at Landon, and he'd done something, and I, and I started in on him, you know, and I, I was thinking I was going to maybe spank him for what he did. And I looked at him, and I remember just feeling like... <laughs> I, I can't even, you know, he ought to have a little anger about what he just did here, but I can't even come up with that. It's gone. I can't, I can't do it. So I finally started to giggle right in front of him. <laughs> I'm going, I, I said, just don't do that again. And he looked at me like, well, that's not the way this goes. <laughs> you know, he walks off quickly, you know, get out quickly while dad changes his mind. The enemy can take ground in us, and that's what Paul was saying. If you don't deal with your anger, the enemy's going to take a, build a room or a place in your life and cause all kinds of trouble. He's going to exacerbate your problem. And it doesn't matter whether it's anger or lust or whatever else it is. Uh, if he has ground there, he's going to do something with it. And what I want you to consider, if you're not on board with this stuff, is this. Number one, Paul wrote this warning to Christians. Why would you write it to Christians if that can't happen to them? And the answer is, you wouldn't. If I didn't need to know this, he wouldn't have written it, but he wrote it. And there's other places where we can talk about that. Now I'm going to build a case here. When we disobey God, so I'm talking about sin, right? When we disobey God, when we go against the revealed word of God, which, by the way, we have right here. When we go against the revealed word of God, we open ourselves up to the enemy to be able to have the right to take ground in us or build a base of operation, however you would like to look at it. Sin gives an opportunity, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, sin gives an opportunity for the enemy to take up a place or a room of operation in us and make our sin worse. Therefore, we learn that we, what we need to do is we need to repent of sin right away. So one of the things you do with anger to keep short accounts with God, if somebody makes you angry, the first thing you do is you forgive them, whether they want it or not, or whether they hear it or not, it doesn't matter. And you're basically saying from the heart, I'm willing to pay for the pain and consequences that you caused me with God's help. And today I'm setting you free from the liability for punishment because that's why we hang on to anger. It's for vengeance. And God said in Romans 12, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And by the way, I also want to mention that possession is not a biblical Greek word. The word is demonization. If you're a Christian, only one person possesses your soul in terms of ownership, and that's God, and nobody can take that away from you. But until we get rid of this sinful flesh, we can have problems with the enemy. So we forgive those people in the case of anger, and by this, we can take away the base of operation that the enemy has, and it really doesn't matter how great of a Christian you are, right? It can happen to you and to me. And today we see this in the life of 
the guy that just became the notable leader of the apostles with Peter. And so let's read it. He just got through receiving the keys of the kingdom from Jesus Christ. And he said, you're the rock, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail over it or overpower it. Verse 18. Down in verse 21 to 23 where we're at today. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, what is that? Well, my friends, that's the gospel. One of the clearest statements of the gospel in the entire Bible. The clearest is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. The gospel is that Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He gave up his life on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. And then he rose again from the dead. That's the gospel. That's the good news message. Here it is. And Jesus is saying here, uh, we're getting close to the time of my demise on earth anyway, the cross. And he started telling them, hey, you guys need to go. You need to know as we go uh, that as we get into Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer a lot of things at the hands of the religious leaders, the people you guys grew up listening to in your, in your uh, services at the temple and in your synagogues, the teachers who teach the law. And they're going to be the ones that persecute me, and the scribes, those who uh, write, write the law and copy the law. And I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised up on the third day. What would you be thinking if that was you, and Jesus just said that, and you're one of his disciples? Well, Peter thought this. And he didn't want to make a big show out of it in front of the other, the other apostles. So he takes Jesus aside in verse 22. And he began to rebuke him. Stop and think about that for a minute. Do you have enough guts to rebuke God? Do you have enough guts to rebuke Jesus? You shouldn't. He's never done anything he needs to be rebuked for. But Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him. And here's what he said. God forbid it. God forbid what? You go into uh, the city, and you getting in trouble with all the religious leaders, and you being killed. I'm not sure, you know, what else is going to happen. I'm not sure about the raised up on the third day, what he thought. And so he says to him, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. What? What Jesus just said is going to happen to him. Think about that. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> wow, okay. How far away is, is Peter from Jesus? Not very far. He took him aside. Maybe he has his hand on Jesus' shoulder. You know, Jesus, I want you to understand something. God forbid what you just said is ever going to happen to you. In fact, he said, I'll never let it happen to you. And it's, it's not going to happen. And Jesus looks at him in the face and says, Get behind me, Satan. Now, if that was you, what are you thinking? Okay, get behind me, Satan. Now, why is he talking to me, and why is he talking to Satan? What's going on here? What, what's, what's really going down? And I'm sure he had some confusion there. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interests. Here's the point. He wasn't talking to Peter. He was talking to Satan, who had completely overcome the leader of the apostles and used him as a mouthpiece to try to stop Jesus from going forward with God's plan. And that's always been Satan's goal. 
That's what he does in our lives, trying to get us to stop going forward with the plan that God has for us. So let's look at it. In verse 21, from that time, uh, and that, that's a signpost connected in the text telling us that there's a change in, in the uh, scenery and what's, what's being taught. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. That word in Greek for must is the strongest way you can say it. It, it really means it is necessary for, to, for him to go to Jerusalem, to suffer many things from the religious leaders and be killed and raised up on the third day. So my first point is this, in verse 21, if you're following along in the bulletin, Jesus clearly reveals that in Jerusalem he will be persecuted, killed, and raised to life on the third, in three days, I should say, again in three days. Jesus is very clear. What's he clear about? He's clear that he's going to be persecuted, he's going to be killed, and raised to life again in three days after he's killed. So the phrase from that time is a marker in the third section of this book, and it tells us the third section of Matthew's writing is about to begin. And it's going to cover uh, the, the, lo- the road of the Lord to the cross. And uh, most of the Gospels deal with that last week of Jesus' life, and we're about to get into a lot of chapters on that uh, very shortly. Jesus begins to get intentional. We're heading to Jerusalem. You guys need to know what's going to happen. Don't be surprised. This is what's going to happen. Probably not the news they wanted to hear, right? And they want to be intentional uh, then in listening as Jesus is intentional about revealing the plan of the Father for him in his mission goal of saving people from their sins. That's why he came. God has a plan. God laid that plan in uh, spiritual concrete in Genesis chapter 3. And verse 15, when Adam and Eve sinned, so right from the beginning, as the Lord is chastising them for their sin and chastises Satan uh, in the, uh, as he appeared or uh, went through a serpent of the day, verse 14 of Genesis 3, uh, he curses Satan because you have done this. Cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and, on, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. The serpent isn't the one that actually did the the sinning. Satan did it through the serpent. And the Bible tells us they used to have a lot of legs, and they were up on legs. Jesus took those away from him as he cursed them in the garden, and now the snake is going to crawl on the ground. Interesting point, when we get to the millennial kingdom, what you understand is that God has changed a lot of things. The lion lays down with the lamb. The little child will play by the viper's den, and mom won't be even concerned about it because they will not hurt or harm in all of God's mountain. What you find out is that when he's saying all these wonderful things, he says, but the snake will crawl on the ground and eat the dust of the earth. How come, how come he didn't help the snake out there? Why in the millennial kingdom will he still be crawling on, on the ground in the dirt? Because God wants them to remember the curse. Remember sin. You still have to get forgiveness in the millennial kingdom if you're born there from sin. And then verse 15, here's God's plan. God says... To to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity means hostility, at the very least antagonism, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. In other words, between the offspring of Satan, which is going to be everybody that's born of, of Adam and Eve and their generations, and her seed. He's picked out one particular woman, and he said one particular seed because the word seed there is singular in the Hebrew text. He has in mind Jesus Christ. What's going to happen? 
He, the seed of the woman, will bruise you on the head, which is a fatal blow, and you will bruise him on the heel, which is not a, a completely fatal blow. That's his plan. There's going to be a confrontation between sin and God, and God will win. And he is using Jesus Christ to pay for the sins of all who will put faith in him. Every man, woman, and child for all of, all of time, until time ends, must put their faith in him. God's plan is to crush the serpent's head, to put an end to the power of death and hell that hangs over every human's life. Jesus is laying out the plan in detail right now. There's no other way to get the job done except to meticulously follow God's predetermined plan. He's planned it from the beginning. He's following it. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. This is where the action of the plan will take place in a not-so-distant future from this point in our text, where Jesus begins to suffer, and he will suffer death as well, uh, in the city where the Father has chosen to make his name dwell. Now, I know he's crucified outside the city, but in the Bible, that's all considered one place. The plan includes Jesus suffering at the hands of the very people on earth who should have understood better because they knew the word of God. They just didn't know the word of God. They memorized the word of God, and that's about as far as it went. They didn't understand it. And Jesus wants his disciples to understand it better than anyone, that Jesus, is number one, is the Messiah, and this is what's waiting for him. But they missed him. This is why Jesus said what he did in his lament over Jerusalem as he was rejected right away. I want to read that from Luke 13, 33. <clears throat> Luke 13, 33. Nevertheless, he says, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus is a prophet. He's going to perish in Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When that day when Jews at the end of, of the uh, tribulation are going to realize this guy was the Messiah, we better repent. Well, moving on. Israel has an evil track record of treating God's spokespersons in a very terrible way. They, they killed the prophets. They stoned them. They locked them up. They sawed them in two. The religious leaders, including uh, now the elders of Israel in Jesus' day, these are members of the Sanhedrin, the highest court in Israel, made up of religious people, mostly Sadducees, but not any members in particular. It was a mixed group. This is the group that's going to be attacking Jesus. And clear as day, he promises he will be killed by these men. Then after being dead for three days, he will rise up again. That's what he said. We just read that in verse 21. How much clearer can you be? Understanding it is our issue, but it's clear. That's what Jesus says. The word for raised up here means to enter into a state of life as a result of being raised. Uh, that, that refers to Jesus. He will literally be brought back from the dead to life after three days. This is exactly what happened to Jesus, as we know, because we know the rest of the story. It, it happened exactly as he said it would happen, not allegorically, but literally. Now, here's the situation. The disciples have all heard 
what the will of God is. What's the will of God? I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be tormented. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. That's the will of God. He just said that. They know the particulars of what Moses recorded in Genesis 3.15, the crushing of Satan's head. This is the will of God as revealed uh, from the Messiah to his disciples. So let me ask this question for us right now. How should we respond to the word of the Lord? What should be our course of action at the point we hear the word? Okay, where's ours? Right here. Okay. So what I'm asking is, when you read something in the Bible that tells you to do something, what, what should my response be? What should your response be? How do we handle that? And what should be our action based on what we just heard? Well, that's a great point. How do we respond to God's plan? In my life group on Sunday nights, we're studying God's plan for the end of the world. It demands a response from us. It demands we maybe change some things in our life and get serious about things. Well, here is what Peter decided to do. He said, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. Not on my watch. I got a sword, you know. I'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. That's never going to happen to you. God forbid that what you just said, that was the will of God. God forbid that happened to you. I'm not going to let it happen. I'm, going to, I'm just going to throw out that's exactly the wrong response. Peter decided to say, I will not allow it. Allow what, Peter? What are you talking about? Not allow you going to Jerusalem and getting killed. That's what. And Jesus stops him and says what? Get behind me, Satan. It's no longer Peter in control of what he's saying. It's Satan. How close is people say, well, God cannot be in close proximity to Satan. Why? Is his his holiness going to be disrupted or anything? God is holy no matter what. He's he's around us every day. (laughs) He doesn't run away from that. Like the picture we saw. What did Peter do? How did he get to that point where now Satan's speaking through him? You know what he did? He denied the will of God. He rebelled against the will of God and said, that's not going to happen. That's what he did when he knew that that's what God said is going to happen. And that's how we get into trouble. We read something in the Bible uh, where God says, don't commit adultery, don't commit fornication, don't do this, don't do that, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, and we just go ahead and do it and think we're going to get away unscathed. And little do we know is that the enemy has an opportunity to take a base of operation in us and build that base of operation and start to work in our life through that cheating or that lying or that stealing or whatever it is we did and make our life worse and alienate us from others and get us to the point where we'll give up more of what God says we should do. So in verses 22 to 23, we will potentially get satanic control of us when we defy the revealed word of God. Why? Because that's sin. That's sin. It is interesting to see how the commentators try to deal with this. It was interesting to me anyway. That's because most of them do not believe that a demon can actually take up a base of operation in a Christian. When I went to Africa, I told Kim Cohn, I said, now look, the first part of my seminar is trying to convince people that Satan can have a place in a Christian's life, not in their spirit, but in their flesh. And he laughed at me. He said, you, you need to know right now, Drop that out of your teaching because we don't need it. We know it happens. These pastors know it happens. They just don't know what to do with it. What are you going to do with these demons and these people? What, what do you do with them? How do you handle them? He said, that's what we want you to spend your time on, not that it can it happen. 
That's where one of the African pastors through the interpreter told me, it's only pastors in America that believe that lie, that Satan can't do that. And look what's happening to your country. Oh, that was nice. Glad to hear that. But most pastors don't believe Christians can be demonized. And they're wrong. One commentator said, uh, and I quote, Peter was playing the role of Satan. Uh, Really? Are you kidding me? Is that the best you can do with this? You really think that Peter said, Lord, uh, let me take you aside here and be the devil's advocate for a minute. Why Why would the lead apostle want to be Satan's advocate? For what? To challenge Jesus on the will of God? Is that what he thinks happening? I mean, what? That's ridiculous. We don't ever want to be the devil's advocate. We want to be an advocate for Jesus Christ. I just can't wrap my mind around Jesus talking to Satan while facing Peter, if indeed it's not possible for Satan to be there. And some people say, well, he wasn't a Christian yet. Christ hadn't risen from the grave yet. That's not the issue. The issue you made for me was... Satan can't take the ground in sinful flesh when you have the Spirit of God there. Really? What does it do to the Spirit of God? I'll tell you what it does to him. He says it grieves his heart, and he won't use you. That's what it does to him. But he doesn't leave. He doesn't get defiled by that. You just need to get rid of it. And Peter's standing there, and Jesus basically just called him Satan. Why wouldn't he, if, if that wasn't the case, why wouldn't he have said, Peter... You sound like Satan when you talk like that. Stop it. He didn't say that. He said, get behind me, Satan. Peter became a mouthpiece for Satan. Wouldn't that really hurt your feelings if Jesus looked at you and said, get behind me, Satan? (laughs) Would me? Ouch. Peter takes Jesus aside privately to rebuke the master for saying such a thing about himself. Can you imagine? It's like saying, Lord, uh, don't, don't say stuff like that, even though it's the will of the Father. What? Rebuke, which is what Peter did, is to express strong disapproval or to speak seriously to someone and warn them. Peter's warning Jesus. Ain't going to happen. Not on my watch. What Peter literally said in the Greek text was, Mercy be to you, Lord. This in no way will happen to you. Who's going to stop it? Who pulled his sword out on the night that Jesus was arrested? and cut Malchus's ear off. And Jesus said, knock it off. Put the sword away. And he healed the man. Jesus said, do you not realize that I could call 12 legions of angels if I wanted to stop this? 12 legions? That's, that's a mere 72,000 angels. And Peter's going to stop this with his sword? If Jesus wanted it stopped, it's over. He didn't want it stopped. It's the will of God. Uh, the Greek dictionary that we call BDAG, which stands for Bauer, Denker, Art, and Gingrich, the guys who edited it, say this can be translated what Peter said is God forbid it. And that's what my new American does. God forbid it. Think about this. Jesus just said here, this is what the Father planned. And you come along and you say, oh, God, forget it. Or God, don't do it. Or God, is, I'm just going to forbid the whole thing. Really? Dr. Craig Keener said, and I'm quoting, the world's, va- the world's values are often Satan's values. And man, that hurts because it's often ours too. Many prefer comfortable beliefs to the cross today. Is it possible that some Christians speak for the devil today? And he says it is. 
Satan took advantage of Peter's lack of submission to the will of God. Do you see that? Dr. Turner said, Peter's mindset became absolutely satanic. We need a periodic reorientation to the values of the kingdom of God. It is possible that the father would actually work suffering in someone's life, and that's what he does. Is it possible? Yes, he does, that he would work suffering in somebody's life, like in Jesus' life, for the plan to come to its fulfillment. Sometimes we suffer because we're in the middle of Jesus' plan, and he's bringing us to a, to a place where we're going to serve him. Peter's lack of submission to the will of God caused Satan to be able to take control of his mind and his mouth. In verse 23, Jesus turned around, and as you know, he said, Get behind me, Satan. Satan is not leading Jesus' program. The Father is. Satan would like him not to go to the cross. I don't think he understands it fully, but he says, this is God's will, so I don't want it to happen. The word for Satan to go away in Greek is hupago. means get out of here, go away. It's the same word that Jesus used to send him away in the, in the uh, temptations in the wilderness when he finally said, uh, away with you, Satan, be gone, in Matthew 4.10. And in that temptation, Jesus fought off Satan through that whole 40 days by sticking with the word of God and doing what God's word said. How are we going to make it in this life? Sticking with the word of God and doing what God's word said. That's how we're going to make it. How quickly we can fall, in verse 23b, into the use of the enemy instead of God. Peter just recently was declared the rock upon which Jesus was going to build his church. Now he is being used as a stumbling block to the fulfillment of the revealed plan of God. Peter opened the door of his life for Satan to use him by going against the will of God, and Satan used him against the will of the Father, most likely because he thought of Jesus being killed. Uh, that's not good. Probably repulsed him. But it's the will of God. doesn't matter if I'm repulsed. He acted on impulse, and he went against the Lord, when Satan took advantage of the open door that Peter made in his life to sin, and he tried to stop Jesus from moving forward with God's plan for him. Why? Why Peter? He's the leader. When God wants to destroy a group of Christians, he goes after their leader. <laughs> Who is that? That's Peter. Now, in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus told Peter, you know what, Peter, Satan has asked my father permission to sift you like wheat. In a church, you're talking about multiple leaders, multiple elders, and that's where Satan wants to start if he wants to destroy the church. With disciples, he starts with a lead disciple, and he did a number on him for a while. One thing I think that really portrays this is Satan's believing what Jesus said. And that's the part that hurts. Do you know who believed verse 21 more than Peter? Satan. That's why he tried to stop it. If it wasn't true, if it wasn't going to happen, he wouldn't have tried to stop it. Peter's one of the problem. Satan takes advantage of that. So in verse 23c, it is apparently a big mistake to be committed to human goals in opposition to the intentions of God and his will. So I have to ask Jesus, Lord, Show me what goals am I committed to in my life. Do they advance my purposes or yours? 
Jesus, am I more about myself than I am about my ministry? Am I more about advancing my likes and my interests than yours? And you see, we learned that that attitude, if I am more about me, is a satanic attitude. Friends, uh, isn't the message a simple one to grasp this morning? If God says something like, do something, why would we ever respond to him, yeah, Jesus, I'm not going to do that. All right, Jesus, I'm not going to let that happen. Or even, Jesus, I will fight you on this, and I'm not going to do it. And we may not be so bold as to actually say to him, I'll fight you about this, I'm not going to do it. But there are people that have. And if we do, we become a stumbling block to others following Christ. And I knew Satan, I know Satan had the idea, I get rid of Peter, I make him fall, the rock of the church is shattered, I win. And we don't want to become a stumbling block to others, so we follow Christ. And if we openly defy God's word, are we not just shooting ourselves in the foot, spiritually and every other way? It is better to not educate the master on what he should be doing and what he shouldn't be doing. It is better that we not try to tell the father what his will should be or what his will is, but get behind what Jesus is doing and let him be the master and do what he wills and not get in his way. And where we belong is doing Jesus' will, following him. That's where disciples belong. We, we follow, he leads. Now I'm going to do something I've never done before, and I, I have five minutes for you. I'm not going to give you the whole five minutes. I want, you to, I want you to be able to show that you've been listening. I'm not going to collect this or grade it or anything like that, but you'll notice under applications, the first one just says number one. It's blank. You know what I'd like you to do? I'd like you to take a minute and write down one thing important that you learned from this text this morning. And I'll wait. Write down one application that you, you've pulled from what we've been talking about. And go ahead and write it down. Then I'll go through the next three with you. I guess a caring pastor would have made sure you all had a pencil. <laughs> I'd like you to work on that. It's my job to explain the text and try to give some applications. It's my job and your job to apply it. I wanted you to try it, see what you could come up with. All right? The second thing I want to say here and under applications is Somebody said that Jesus underwent suffering to show the ultimate extent of his obedience. Jesus underwent suffering to show the ultimate extent of his obedience. So when God brings some kind of suffering or pain into our life, 
Maybe one of the other things we can do is look at it and say, hey, I've got an opportunity to show how obedient to Christ I can be. That'd be a good way to look at it. Number three, just to, just to get a handle on the fact that God doesn't need our input on how he should do things. Peter, <laughs> Greg, <laughs> he needs our obedience to what he has planned. That's what he needs. Am I obedient to his plan? And finally, I would suggest that we keep short accounts with God, and I should say with other people, and just don't give the enemy ground in our life in the first place so that the Spirit of God can be the one in control, not us or the enemy. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know, uh, or at least we have an idea, about how much you loved Peter. You made him the uh, rock that you build the church on. You made him the leader of the disciples. You told him Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. And I don't know how we would respond if you told us that. And then we saw Peter go through his denials of you. And I can say this. Satan really worked hard to destroy that man. I'm sure of that. But through faith, he persevered, and he became that leader you wanted him to be. And he wrote two books of the Bible that present for us a very mature Christian individual who learned from his mistakes, repented of his sins, and then encouraged others to do the same. Help us not to believe the lie from the enemy that he can't harm us or can't build a base of operation in our life. Instead, let us be vigilant. Let us keep short accounts with you. Take care of our sin the minute it happens and not allow him to build a base of operation in us. I want to thank you for teaching us these things in your word. Help us to understand the reality of the battle. And Father, give us the wisdom through the word of God to be able to fight because we are in a battle and we should live like it. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>